Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, everyone. Good to be back. As anyone that listened to our last podcast with guest Peter Van Dessel, Jim Power is taking his usual fortnight off. After the Irish budget, he has to go and lie down for a while. As usual, that's what he's doing. And I'm delighted and indeed honoured to have guest Duncan Weldon making a second appearance on the other hand today. We're going to talk about several things. Duncan, for those of you that listened to our previous podcast with him about his book, 200 Years of British Economic History. It was a a marvellous read, and I'd certainly recommend that podcast to anybody that is interested in the book, and I'd certainly recommend the book. So thank you very much for agreeing to stand in for Jim today, Duncan. The one thing that I wanted to start with was just some news out this morning, which is that British public finances are coming in a wee bit better than expected. And in one regard at least, relative to the official forecasting agency, the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, they're coming in a lot lower, certainly on a monthly basis for September than forecast. Tax revenues are much higher, and even government expenditure is lower than forecast. This kind of mirrors the Irish experience running into our own budget in Ireland a couple of weeks ago, in which the official numbers, all of a sudden turned out to be much better than expected. Still very high borrowing levels, of course, but much lower than both the government itself and its own equivalent official forecasting agency had previously thought. That's the similarity. The contrast between the two countries is that the UK still has to have its budget in a short while. And there is no big debate between the Taoiseach, the Irish Prime Minister, and his finance minister about what to do with the new budget largesse. Pascal Donoghue, the finance minister, chose not to to use it. It's now an open question as to how much wiggle room Rishi Sunak has and whether or not he will uh, be a little bit more generous in in the budget. 
And then there is the, the and that's in the context of the wider debate because there is a suspicion that Boris Johnson is a spender, and that there is something of a battle going on between number ten and number eleven. Downing Streets. So your, your thoughts on that, Duncan? Firstly, um, thank you for having me back. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, I mean, today's UK public finance numbers, as you say, you know, better, better than expected. We've now got the numbers for the first half of this financial year, March to September, the last six months. And government borrowing in Britain has pretty much halved compared to where we were in the first six months of the last financial year. So in the first half of this financial year, it came in at about £108 billion, which is more than £100 billion lower than the same period last year. And, you know, the most recent official forecasts from the Office of Budget Responsibility, they date to March, and they now just look really outdated. And that's not fully the OBR's fault. You know, it was a difficult time to be forecasting at the start of March. They closed their forecast period, I think, at the end of um, of middle of February um, this year. And at that point, it was unclear how quickly the um, vaccine rollout was going to proceed. It was unclear what was going to happen with reopening. I think the general sense now is that the OBR was very pessimistic on growth for 2021 too pessimistic on borrowing. Looks like borrowing is probably going to undershoot in this full year 2021 to 2022 by something in the region of 25 to 30 billion pounds. So, you know, the Chancellor is going to be handed something of a windfall compared to forecasts for his budget. And that's just part of it. You know, that's just the undershoot in this year. The really big thing is what the OBR is going to say about the long-term damage done to the economy by the pandemic. You know, this concept of scarring. You know, the OBR at the moment, its official forecasts say they think the lasting impact of the pandemic is something like a three percentage point of GDP hit to the economy in the long run. It would be three percent smaller than it would have been without a pandemic. That's looking very pessimistic. If they start to revise down their scarring number, then suddenly the medium term picture looks quite optimistic as well. But yeah, you're right. The big question is, What's the Chancellor going to do with this windfall relative to forecast? And it looks like there's a battle between number 10 Downing Street and number 11 Downing Street over whether this should be paying down debt or whether this should be funding spending promises. One of the things that struck me this week is that the the battle lines are being drawn in sometimes quite peculiar ways. So I, I wonder whether the Treasury is going back to, perhaps it never departed from its roots back in the 1930s when Keynes railed against the Treasury view of the economy, which caricaturing it slightly was that the Treasury just always wants to cut public expenditure and raise taxes, no matter what the state of the economy, no matter what the source of the shock that the economy might or might not be going through at the moment. Because we know that one of the big things that's happening at the moment is the upcoming COP26 meeting on the environment, the global environment in, in Glasgow. And there was a or at least 1,500-page documents that was produced by the government that told us all about we will not be having gas boilers from 2035 onwards, that we need to be driving electric cars, and that we all need to start giving up dairy and all that good stuff that received a lot of a lot of attention. And I'd, I'd be interested in your views on, on all of that, particularly the economics of all of that. But on the financing of the changes that both countries and as individuals, we're going to have to make to meet our net zero targets. The Treasury, in its accompanying document, if anybody read the first one, they certainly, 
I think probably about three people read the Treasury's document. Buried within it was a paragraph that really made my jaw drop, which said quite explicitly that the costs of retrofitting our economies, if you like, of replacing our gas boilers, doing the, the um, move to away from fossil fuels and all the things that we have to do both nationally as individuals should most definitely not be met by borrowing. And some phrasing was used about not imposing these costs on future generations. Now, I'm pretty sure that that's not even wrong, that uh, any economist would say that the benefits of everything that we're doing now, because they are going to be felt particularly by future generations rather than this one, is exactly the kind of thing that we should be borrowing for. Am I right? No, I think you're completely right. I mean, you know, we've got a classic political economy problem when you look at the transition to net zero, when you look at the you know, the costs and benefits and expenditures as planned by the Climate Change um, Committee, the, the body in Britain that, you know, forecasts for the government what you need to do to meet decarbonisation by 2050. You know, to, to be really blunt about it, what it involves doing is spending a great deal of money in the 2020s and the early 2030s for benefits that start to emerge in the 2040s and the 2050s. So, you know, you pay to insulate buildings now that costs a lot of money. Your heating bills fall, but it takes an awful long time for those smaller heating bills to recoup that cost of um, insulating, you know, just, just in buildings. And that's a political economy problem because, you know, you're talking about spending a lot of money in the next 15 years for something you're not going to see the benefits of for 25, 30 years. And it's a particular problem for this government in Britain, whose core political coalition of voters generally tend to be older. You know, there's, there's a big edge skew in voting patterns in Britain. And it will be hard for any government to ask people to spend money now for benefits in 20, 30 years time. It's particularly hard for this government because, you know, being horribly cynical about it, many of this government's voters might not be around in 30 years time when the um, benefits um, start to materialise. And if the Treasury thinks that this needs to be paid for through taxation rather than borrowing, then that political economy problem becomes even more severe because you're asking people to pay more in tax now for something they might not see the benefits from. So, yeah, I, I mean, the Treasury, you know, as you alluded to, the Treasury is a department where traditionally civil servants rise by saying no, where, you know, there is a strong internal emphasis on controlling expenditure um, from other departments, from generally, you know, generally arguing against borrowing. And that's kind of a problem when you're talking about a huge transformation of your economy over a 20 to 30 year period, which it makes much more sense to fund through borrowing, particularly given that government borrowing costs, even after the rise of the last four or five weeks, are still historically very low. So was this some sort of junior Dominic Cummings type spad writing this comment? Because I'm quite sure that any decent Treasury economist, and um, although it's a long and distant memory of mine, i began my working career as a Treasury economist way back under Chancellor Nigel Lawson. And I know the quality of the people <laughs> present company accepted that they typically employed. No serious economist would have written that paragraph. Do you think that this is part of the battle between number 10 and number 11, and they're just really just setting out battle lines? Or do you think that they seriously do believe this, this rhetoric that we shouldn't borrow? I think the political leadership at the top of the Treasury genuinely believes that borrowing borrowing should be avoided as much as possible. You know, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor 
you know, he's been the biggest spending chancellor of all time in peacetime. And yet he himself seems less comfortable with this compared to Johnson. Johnson, I think, given free reign, would be quite dovish when it came to fiscal policy, quite dovish on the deficit. He likes, you know, what Boris Johnson likes is big infrastructure projects. You know, this is the man that wants to build a bridge to Ireland. This is the man, um, you know, he's, he's obsessed with big infrastructure projects, big spending. I think he's quite relaxed about it. Sunak has very different instincts. He's um, a smaller state conservative. He's more Thatcherite to that extent. And, you know, the, the message you get from the Chancellor again and again at all of his public events, uh, all of his interventions is that a 1% rise in interest rates would cost the government £25 billion a year more in debt service costs. Now, of course, in a world in which interest rates are rising, you'd hope that was because the economy was performing better, that tax revenues were coming in um, faster, that debt to GDP was falling because GDP was growing faster. But he focuses very much on that that interest about interest bill. And I think he is very suspicious of anything which adds to the stock of government debt. I mean, you saw it with, you know, we had a big, you know, a big announced increase in national insurance contributions coming in in April next year to fund, well, it was sold as funding social care, but for the first three or four years, it's going to be funding the backlog of NHS patients related to the um, pandemic. I would have thought actually, given the NHS backlog is a pandemic story, there was a fairly sound argument for funding that through borrowing, given where um, borrowing costs are. But again, the Treasury won that battle, looking at about a £12 billion tax increase from April next year. But that tax increase almost looks a small change compared to the already big errors that we've had on taxes and spending for just one month. The, 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 the amount of money that was raised by that national insurance, that de facto tax increase, is smaller than the improvement in the public finances that we've had in one month. I mean, the, these numbers are big numbers, aren't they, Duncan? So one wonders why they felt the need to do that tax increase in the first place, unless it was, as you say, politi- political economy and just laying out the ground to try and head off this huge head of steam that is coming from Number 10 for spending on whatever Johnson's latest project actually is. Well, who do you think is going to win this battle? And what would be your guess for the kind of shape, not the details, who knows what they're going to be, but the shape of the budget? Do you think that he is going that who's going to win? Sunak or, 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 the, or the prime minister? I think Sunak's going to win in the short term. I think he's going to bank a lot of these savings in terms of, you know, having lower borrowing numbers in the future, a different trajectory of debt in the future. So I think you'll get quite big upgrades to the forecasts. Um, but I think you're still going to get quite a tight settlement outlined for public spending. And I think part of this is for political economy reasons, and it's for very cynical ones that, um, you know, I think the world that the Chancellor would like to find himself in, and I think Johnson is not actually adverse to this world, is that in the budget in the autumn, the following year, so late 2022, the Chancellor can stand up at the dispatch box and say, you know, we, 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 we had this tight settlement for public spending. Now the numbers are looking even better. And look, we have room for some tax cuts, you know, ahead of a potential general election in 2023. I think that's what they've got their, their eyes on at the moment. So they are talking, or at least amongst themselves, about the possibility of that classic time-honoured political business cycle, pre-election tax cuts. You think yeah. that's what lies in 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 Britain's economic future from a policy perspective? I mean, I think two things. So, you know, we've set out, you know, we set out in the March fiscal event, quite a steep path of corporation tax rises over the next few years. 
I think they will scale back some of those. Um, and I suspect they will be looking to cut personal taxes, um, possibly through a large rise in the personal allowance for income tax, that sort of um, that sort of thing. But I suspect that is second half of next year. This year, I think the story is going to be big improvements in the borrowing numbers, decent enough upgrades to GDP growth, certainly for this year, and quite a tight settlement for um, public spending. And I, just at this point, remind our Irish readers that there are many similarities between the Irish and British tax systems. But one big difference is the point at which people end up paying the higher rate of tax, which is which is roughly 40 percent in each case. It's in the UK, it's about on current exchange rates uh, between 55 and 60,000 euros is when you move to this of taxable income, you move to the higher rate. In Ireland, it's 35 to 40,000 euros. And um, it, it is a big difference. People end up paying the higher rate of tax. So I think that our Irish listeners will be look, looking at your forecast, Duncan, of uh, an even higher entry point for, for the higher rate of tax with, with some, some degree of envy. <laughs> yeah. The, the other uh, thing that interests me about, about fiscal policy, and I don't know whether you, you follow the, the debate in the United States very much, but it, it, there's clearly another big fiscal debate going on there. And um, we have this slightly odd situation where it's the Democrats that are the problem rather than the Republicans in terms of the fiscal largesse that, that Biden wishes to dole out. And it seems that the scale of the fiscal packages that Biden wishes to um, embark on are being scaled back because of his own, as it were, backbenchers rather than the Republican Party. Does this strike you as slightly odd that you have these conservative Democrats saying that we should not be expanding social programs and indeed expanding spending on the environment in the way that Biden seems to want to? Do you think it makes sense? US politics, I always find quite strange because, you know, we, we, we conceive of it as a two-party system, but it's not really a two-party system. It, it, it's a multi-party system with disparate political coalitions grouped into two parties. So, you know, yeah, there, there are big differences, obviously, between your more radical Democrats and your sort of more conservative you know, mansion. This side. So, you know, and obviously, the Senate majority is wafer thin. So the power of these more conservative Democrats is is magnified. But, you know, you step back, you look at fiscal policy in the US versus fiscal policy in Europe. We're getting a really grand real time experiment in macroeconomics here. In that, you know, the US put in more monetary and fiscal stimulus than most European countries did in 2020. And it's doubled down in 2021 with, again, longer lasting, more expansionary programs. I mean, what I think is fascinating. If you, it, it, in a way, it's, it's, look it's, at where it's the IMF, going backwards in time. Yeah. yeah. Mm. If you look at the if you look at where the IMF, if you look at the IMF forecasts for how big they think each you know, economy is going to be in 2022, and compare it to their forecast at the end of 2019, before the pandemic, they think they now think the US economy is going to be larger in 2022 than they did two years ago. So, you which know, is astonishing. The, yeah, yeah, astonishing. Given, yeah. given your earlier comments about the way in which the OBR is trying to estimate scarring, yeah. the, the, the similar estimates that, being, is, that are being done for the United States economy is that actually it's negative scarring. The, the economy is going to be even bigger than yeah. we thought. Yeah, and that's the only, the only major advanced economy where that's the case. And you know what, it's certainly, you know, if you're taking a short to medium term view, i.e. the early 2020s, this 
huge amount of US stimulus has worked. Now, you can debate whether in the long run it's going to cause a different set of problems. But in the short run, you know, I mean, I always think, you know, at the moment we, we, we're talking about inflation as the, um, the big macroeconomic problem and, and, and shortages. And, you know, to one extent, that's a nice problem to have. You know, the alternative is a world in which policy was not as supportive as it was in 2020. And you're dealing with 10% plus unemployment in America and all of um, Northern Europe. And, you know, you, you're not going to have you're not going to have firms struggling to find workers when you've got 10% unemployment. But you know, I'm not sure that's a better outcome than what we have. Sure. One of the things that strikes me about the, 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 the debate, particularly in the UK, and about having whether or not to use the extra tax revenues that have come in unexpectedly, is the extent to which you and other people in Britain are worried about the epidemiological situation. Now, we're not epidemiologists, so we must be very careful about um, forecasting or indeed um, presenting any thoughts in, in this area, because it seems to me that throughout the course of the pandemic, anything that any expert, and particularly non-expert like me, has said has proved to be wrong pretty quickly. But the situation is pretty poor. But we've got a situation where we've emerged from the lockdown ended in the middle of July. And the numbers are very bad on coronavirus cases, not as bad as they were at a similar point last year. But nevertheless, hospitalizations and deaths are going the wrong way in the UK. And we had the Secretary of State for Health only yesterday, making all sorts of uh, gloomy noises about what we should and shouldn't be doing. Do you think that that the economists in the Treasury are worried that we might actually, from an economic perspective, take another hit from coronavirus? Or, or do you think that the other thing that the health ministers are saying both yesterday and today, which is that plan B isn't even being considered yet, let alone lockdowns, how worried do you think we should be? So, OK, I, I think we should be cautious. Um, firstly, I think, you know, the government is very reluctant to go back to lockdowns as in you know closing hospitality venues and stay-at-home orders and no mixing and all of that sort of stuff but even though the government is reluctant to do that you know the most important thing to remember about the economic outlook at the moment is that we are still in a pandemic and the pandemic isn't finished yet and we saw in the UK numbers in July we saw a big spike in cases and we now know from the GDP data at the time although it was obvious in the real-time data, that that spike in cases really took the wind out of the recovery in July, and lots of that weakness lingered on into August. You know, and there's two mechanisms through which that happens. Firstly, when you've got a big spike in cases, you've got workers having to isolate, and firms suddenly have, you know, workers unexpectedly absent, and that disrupts production and their business. And secondly, because when cases are spiking, you know, no matter what the public health guidance is, there are plenty of people out there who start to be more cautious about their social mixing. They go, you know, they, they might commute into work less and work from home more and spend less. They might go out less. So, yeah, I think any spike in cases hits the supply side but with worker shortages and it hits the demand side as people exercise a bit more caution. You know, I'm not going to try and predict the, the trajectory of cases between now and Christmas, but with cases where they are, you would expect the October economic numbers to be a bit weaker than they would have been otherwise. That could easily continue into November. So I think the Treasury certainly should be worried that any spike in cases over the winter 
will have an economic consequence, even if it's not as disastrous a consequence as the three national lockdowns we had. One of the interesting things for the outsider, like me, looking at the UK government and its response to the pandemic is that we've now, if you, if you read Dominic Cummings's blog and you read any anything that all sorts of different commentators say about it, is that you might just about forgive them delaying the first lockdown uh, because nobody knew what was going on back then. And we have all those debates about whether or not herd immunity was the policy, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't forgive them delaying the second lockdown. And what actually happened was that all of the scientific advice was to go hard back in the late summer of last year, and they delayed it. And that and that had both a, a, a health um, and economic cost. And that the criticism that's being made at the, at the moment is that all the scientists are saying the same thing again, not lockdown, but we need to have more mask wearing and uh, vaccine passports and all of the rest. Now, the plan B, what one presumes that what that is what the plan B is and that Johnson and co are essentially just beholden to their own backbenchers that are coming at this from a libertarian rather than from any other perspective. And that um, we're, we're, we're going through this, but we've gone through twice already in the UK, we're going through again. Do you have a personal view on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have some sympathy of that view. And I think actually, it was the delays in the third lockdown, I find the least forgivable, in that by that point, we knew there were working vaccines, and we were weeks away from rollout. And I think actually, at that point, you know, the trade off you're thinking about with lockdown is very different. Um, you're thinking, we are locking down for a while and we can see the road out of it with this vaccine rollout. I mean, I, I think the case was just stronger to go to go earlier on that third that third lockdown, the one that began just before Christmas. Um, but I mean, I think the real, you know, where the UK really seems to be slipping up in the last few weeks, two things. One, um, and you can't completely blame the government for this one. I think the Joint Vaccine Committee um, get some of the blame as well. We seem to have really delayed the rollout to sort of um, teenagers, um, so, you know, 12 year olds up compared to much of Europe. And when you look at the case numbers at the moment, you know, a lot of it is um, secondary school kids. Um, and obviously it spreads via them to other households. But, you know, that's partially because we didn't vaccinate um, younger people um, as early as we could have done. But the real the real worry at the moment appears to be the rollout of the booster shots for the over 50s looks to be going at something of a snail's pace. And, you know, I mean, the UK, the UK vaccine rollout in the first half of this year was an enormously impressive bit of, you know, state capacity. Um, I think it surprised a lot of people, including myself, just quite how quickly, how smoothly, how fast it went. But it just seems that, you know, that that's what we need to be doing again now with booster shots. You know, the UK may be we don't know, but the UK may be suffering from being a victim of an early success here, that we know that there is a, a bit of immunity um, waning um, after five, six, seven months. And because the UK vaccinated older people earlier than much of um, the rest of Europe, you know, we are, uh, we are longer into that process. We are already suffering from a bit of immunity um, waning. So, you know, the argument is what we should have been doing is rolling out those booster shots from September. Um, at the sort of pace we were rolling out the vaccine, but it seems the eye has been taken off the ball there. And, you know, the, the health secretary yesterday almost appeared to be blaming the public for this, saying people should be coming forward for their booster shots. But, um, you know, the government has a big role to play there in inviting people to these procedures, in setting up the kind of drop-in centres we had 
you know, in the late spring, early summer to get people vaccinated. And that just doesn't seem to be happening yet. I think there will be a, a price to be paid for that. Yeah, I'm coming up to the six month anniversary of my second shot next Sunday, actually. So I'll be very interested to see if I get the invitation. I've tried in anticipation of that to see if I can get something booked and no chance. So <laughs> I, I, I have a data, one data point that says that it, it is tricky, whereas getting the first vaccine was relatively straightforward for me. It was, as you say, it was it was very, very smooth and very, very well done. It, it has to be said. Fine. We've got a few minutes left, Duncan. And one of the things that I actually wanted to do at the top of the show, but immediately launched into, into fiscal <laughs> politics, was talk about our own experiences as economic journalists mm-hmm. and uh, some the new development that is essentially this, us talking in the way that we are, which is which is quite new. Um, we're doing it on a platform called Substack. I used to write a weekly business column for many years for the Irish Times. You've been a journalist, an economic journalist, uh, following a career as a professional economist at places like the Bank of England. Um, You've had several journalistic jobs, Newsnight being one of them. Uh, Many of our Irish listeners will know know that program very, very well. And most recently, The Economist. And you have taken a decision similar to the one that I took last March was to leave mainstream media and start doing it for ourselves. Um, I can the the reasons for me doing it were many and varied. One was just I've, I've just sort of reached an age where I, I would like to do have more independence to do the sort of stuff that I like to do. Um, I also have a view that that the quality of economic journalism has uh, hasn't let's just say uh, improved much in recent years. That that might be a function of the economics profession itself, which of course is is is, is a separate discussion. But a lot of the things that used to be done, for example, by investment banking economists and other public intellectuals, if you like, does this, it's not done in the way that it was before. Um, newspapers, and this isn't a comment about the Irish Times or The Economist in particular, but more, more generally, newspapers generally are broke these days. And so therefore, I don't have many resources to devote to the kind of stuff that perhaps you and I would have done in the past or people like us would have done in the past. And Substack seem and Substack type organizations seem to be uh, something that started in the United States. These things often do, and quite a lot of mainstream journalists have made the transition that we have made recently. Um, and so, I just wonder what how your experiences have gone with this. My audience reaction has been much bigger than I and better than I thought it would ever be to Jim and I and other guests like you. On the other hand, we, our numbers are much bigger than I thought we would ever get the reaction that we get, the comments that we get, the dialogue that we enter into with people. And so there seems to be uh, more of a market for this kind of stuff than even I thought. I don't just wonder what your experiences have been. Yeah, so I'm I'm only about four weeks into having launched the Substack and I've been I've been really happy with the response so far in terms of signups. You know, I don't feel when I'm sending out newsletters, I'm sending them out into the void. You know, I know people are reading them. Um, people are feeding back. People are you know, replying to me, and I, I I'm enjoying the platform. And it's nice, it's nice to be able to write completely in my own voice, to not think I'm part of an institution, and you know that the various pressures that come with that. To be able to say what I think, it's nice to be able to set my own agenda, writing about what I think is interesting. And yeah, I mean. You know, ask me again in four weeks, but the first four weeks, I've been very pleasantly surprised by how I'm finding it and by the and by the reaction. Without casting aspersions on either of our erstwhile employers, but more general comments, what do you think the state of economic journalism 
currently is today compared to how it's evolved throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it I think it varies. I think it varies quite a lot. I think I you know I agree with um, your comments there when we started um, discussing this at first. Um, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know the, the growth of you know what we used to call the blogosphere, or whatever, has opened up this whole other sort of potential. You know, if you're an interested member of the general public who wants to learn about economics, you know, you can you can go and read. Um, some of the best economists in the world writing all of the time on the internet and having these sort of debates, which, you know, 30 years ago would have proceeded quarter by quarter at a time in the pages of economic journals and in closed seminars to which the public didn't have access. You can now you can now view all of this online as a member of the public. Um, and I think the economics journalist profession has slightly struggled with that. Um, because there's now suddenly, you know, the curtain's been pulled back and anyone that wants to can go and see what's happening at the very cutting edge of the profession in real time. And sort of the role of the economics journalist as, as gatekeeper almost um, has fallen away. And so then you've got to reinvent what economics journalist journalist journalism is about. What I'm liking about doing stuff myself on Substack is I don't have to cover, you know, the weekly beat of UK and European data releases, because if you want to know what the German unemployment numbers say, you know, you can find that online somewhere very quickly. And I can sort of pick and choose where I think is interesting on a week by week basis and, you know, write about why I think something is is interesting and noteworthy rather than, you know, so, you know, I'm probably not going to write a post on, um, you know, yesterday's UK um, inflation data. Because I don't really feel I've got anything interesting to add to it. Whereas I may write something about today's public finances where I think I've got something distinctive to say. One of the things that struck me recently in the context of economic journalism was that there was half-decent coverage of this year's Nobel Prize to David Card and others. The journalists kind of sort of got it. Some did, some didn't. Just how big a departure this was for the kind of stuff that Nobel prizes in economics have been awarded for in the past um, and, and that the, the credibility revolution, as it's been called in economics, is, is quite something. And I wonder whether you think that's been covered well or, or, or not. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think the, yeah, the card at all, um, Nobel, I think was covered well. But I think, you know, David Card is an easy economist to write about. You know, he goes out and does very real world experiments. You know, you do the minimum wage stuff in New Jersey and Pennsylvania or whatever. That's very easy to, you know, he's got research, which is just easier to write up for a general audience than some previous Nobel winners. Um, And you're right. I think in the quality press that it has been reflected in the coverage. What a what a departure this is in terms of, you know, this is a this is a, a Nobel awarded for empirical work rather than theorizing, which is where most Nobels um, are awarded for. And that, that is a big shift. Yeah, one of the things that struck me that, that there was there was an obvious question that, that no journalist asked and should have asked Cargs. I'm pretty sure I know what his answer would have been. But, you know, he showed that raising the minimum wage in that particular set of circumstances and one or two others, it, there was also a, a Cuba Miami thing that he did as well. And other, other authors have, have examined data and reached similar conclusions is that these uh, relatively small, quite localized rises in minimum wage didn't have the effects that economic theory would have predicted, that 
the the the, the normal headlines of if you raise the minimum wage, you'll cause a lot of unemployment just didn't happen. Doesn't necessarily does that mean we should just raise the minimum wage? No, well, no, I, think, I think I think what I think what Card would answer, which is you know, in the spirit of the credibility revolution, is it depends. That you know, the whole thing is um you know, I think what, what what economists have learned over the last twenty years is that minimum wages don't necessarily lead to less employment, and that yeah, and that some increases in the minimum wage actually drive up unemployment. You know, the, the wage floor is less of a problem than previous theories would would suggest for employment, but that doesn't mean there isn't a ceiling. You know, just you know, I mean, if we were to put the minimum wage to fifty pounds an hour tomorrow. I'm reasonably certain that would lead to a lot of unemployment. But you know, and the, but I think that the thing is, you know, the less the level at which the minimum wage starts to impact employment is an empirical question. Um, yeah, which has to be treated in an empirical manner. And it's context dependent, as you entirely said. You, yeah. it's, it's potentially something you would want to do when the economy was hot rather than cold, for example. Absolutely. Um, and it would have, de- depending on where you are in the business cycle. And so that answer, it all depends, is is, is absolutely the right yeah. one. Duncan, we, we've overrun as usual <laughs> because it because and gone off into all sorts of directions that, that I didn't tell you we were going to go into. <laughs> but that's the nature of great conversations like this. And I think that's the power of, the, of this kind of format. I know that you've very kindly agreed to come on again uh, roughly around this time next week uh, for Jim's second week of, of lie down. Um, and I, I know that we want to get back to the, the pressing economic issue of the day, which is the global supply squeeze and its accompanying inflation, which just seems to be a problem that get wor- gets worse every day rather than better. So I'll look forward to that. I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today. A great, great discussion. And we'll see you next week. Fantastic. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.com cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.